All right. Book of Acts. Um, we have been slowly working our way through. We uh, started off seeing the disciples experience the resurrected Jesus. They'd seen him crucified and buried and now resurrected and, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Um, they're told, hey, don't do anything, but wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they do. And the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, empowers them to proclaim the gospel, and uh, a whole bunch of people become Christians. And voila, you've got the church. And it's going really well. Like They are very healthy. They are loving each other well. They're in fellowship. They're devoted to each other. Um, they are telling others, their friends, their family, co-workers about Christ. Those folks are becoming Christians. The church is growing. And then persecution starts to break out. And at first it starts with just like, interrogations, threats, then they flog a couple of the apostles, then um, uh, they, they uh, literally stone Stephen, uh, one of the Christians in the church movement, to death. And once that happens, it's like, just opens the door to wide-scale persecution. And you've got uh, this guy, Saul, that's mentioned in Acts chapter 8, who is spearheading the whole persecution operation. Um, and we read about that in Acts 8, verse 1 through 3. It said, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, uh, except for the apostles. So um, this is just a, it's so interesting how Luke, he's, a, he's just a great writer, right? He just mentions offhand this guy named Saul uh, in we, of course, don't have any idea, like, who is this guy? Like, what, what's going on? Why does he mention his name at all? Um, must be significant in the plot line. And, and it just kind of gives us a little bit of a setup that he begins to uh, pay off in Acts chapter 9. And um, what we're going to see in this uh, chapter is Saul experiencing uh, a new awareness of some things. Um, He's also going to experience a profound acceptance, and he's going to be sent on a mission. So he's going to experience an awareness and acceptance, and he's going to be sent on a mission. So Acts 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It's a really dramatic description of Saul. Breathing threats and murder. I mean, that's, that, that's really scary. Um, he's using the power of the state. So religion and state are morphed together in, in first century. And um, these religious leaders also have the, 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 the power of uh, the government, and uh, so he goes to the high priest, and uh, he's made a sweep of the entire city, evidently of Jerusalem, and he's like, okay, we've run all the Christians out, or we've killed or captured them, and now we're going to start to take this show on the road, and he's like, I need you to give me some letters of rec sort of recommendation that proves that I have the right to do this, kind of like, please deputize me so that I can go to Damascus, and I can do this sweeping of, of uh, Damascus just like I have uh, of Jerusalem, and Damascus is about 150 miles, um, so it's not, not a small journey, so this took multiple days, and 
it's interesting, they, they, they make almost the entire journey, and it says in verse 3, now as they went on his way, uh, he approached Damascus. So he's, he's made it to about the end of the 150-mile journey, and then suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul meets the exalted Christ. Um, we saw the exalted Christ in the story about Stephen a couple chapters earlier. And here we get to see him again. He's, he's, he's manifesting himself. He's a, appearing uh, to Saul. Um, it's in a very intentional way. Like This is different than the way he appears to Stephen. Um, he, 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 he's very intentional in the way that he in, encounters these different uh, people. And so for Saul, he gets like this heavenly light and a voice, right? And this is definitely a close encounter <laughs> with something divine. Like there's, there's, th- these are signifiers that uh, God, whoever this God is, I- is speaking to him and is calling him by name. So it's not just this sort of light and this nebulous voice. It's like this, this voice knows me and can actually call out my name. And we see this even in the Old Testament in the burning bush with Moses, right? And God's like, hey, Moses, Moses. Um, and so there's this intimacy to it, but also this glorious sort of transcendence that God displays uh, to Saul. And he uh, asks the Saul a question, which this is always also kind of, kind of really stunning, right? God asking people questions. Um, and so he, he asked this question, why are you persecuting me? And, and that is a really intriguing question because earlier even Luke describes the persecution in chapter 8 that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And here, Jesus is saying it's against me, right? And this is especially poignant for uh, Paul. Um, and uh, Paul will write a lot uh, in the future. Saul, who will become Paul, uh, will write a lot in the future about Christ and the church, that the church being the body of Christ. Um, and he just, this is how Paul describes himself um, before Jesus. Um, he says, though I myself have, have a reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here, he's, he's having to deal with this, I am persecuting God um, when he himself is a religious professional. He was a Pharisee, right? Was one of the most devout religious groups of the first century. Um, he was not only a Pharisee, but he was a member of what was known as the Sanhedrin, which is like a, a, a ruling council. 
he is a part of the, the, the Jewish ruling council. So he's not just a Pharisee. He's like in the upper echelon of leadership in um, the, the pharisaical um, movement. And then um, he is even saying he was more zealous than your average Pharisee, right? Like he uh, is saying, I proved my zeal by being a persecutor of the church. And, and so he definitely believed like he's on a mission from God. And now he's being confronted with this reality. No, actually, you're an enemy of God. You are against God. Um, and so, again, Jesus being very intentional about revealing himself, but not saying who he is. This, this is almost comical to me because Saul's like, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Voice, who are you? <laughs> and then Jesus answers, right? And Jesus this is Jesus. Now, this is a low moment for Saul. I mean, he's gotten it all wrong. All wrong. This whole time, he thought he was on a mission from God. He was doing God's bidding. He was in the upper echelon of the religious people. Like, if anybody was getting it all right, it was him. And in this moment, he hears, oh, I'm getting it all wrong. I'm working against Jesus, and Jesus is God. And as I said before, not only is that kind of coming to his attention, but also that Jesus is identifying with the church so intimately that he's saying, you're not just opposing the church, you're opposing me. Uh, as I said before, um, Saul, who would later become Apostle Paul, uh, writes a lot of Jesus's identification with the church as his body. Here's a couple of examples. Ephesians 4 he writes this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Describes Christ's connection being so intimate with the church that it's like a head being connected to a body. In the very next chapter of Ephesians, he's teaching husbands how to love their wives. And he says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So there it is again, that husbands are being told to love uh, that love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is like Christ loving his own uh, body. Now, this realization obviously really rocks Saul to the core. Like, he is undone. Um, and Luke describes both Saul and his posse, because so, he's got this posse of guys that, that are with him, that are going to help him uh, with the arrests and the um, interrogations and all the things that they're planning to do in Damascus. And so it describes both their reactions. So verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So God's not done getting Saul's attention. Um, he's not only reprimanded for persecuting Jesus' church, but he's blinded, um, physically blinded 
And uh, Saul believed, you know, he was seeing things with absolute clarity. And so now not only does he have this spiritual reality that I got it all wrong, but now he has a physical reminder that you got it all wrong. You're blind. You didn't, you didn't know. You didn't understand what was true. And this is, I think, very consistent with Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees. There's a place in John chapter 9 where he's talking to the Pharisees, this group that Saul was a part of. Um, and it says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, there's a, a lot of layers in that. But one thing Jesus is saying is that you are claiming that you see everything perfectly and you're actually the opposite. You're blind. You're blind to the very divine Son of God standing right before <laughs> your eyes. And Saul found himself in much a similar place, completely blind to who Jesus was. Now, Saul is left to consider these, th you know, during these three very dark, literally dark days, what's just happened, right? Who God is, who he is in light of this holy God. And this really is the first part of any Christian's conversion um, is an awareness of who God is and then a realization of our own sin in light of that holy God. And, and Jesus lets Saul sit in that for three good long days. And he really is. He's undone to the point where he's just not eating and drinking. And I don't think, you know, who knows all of his motivations for that, but, but it doesn't seem like he's just like, oh, I'm going to have a spiritual fast here. Like, like, like he just doesn't know what's going to happen next. Like is God going to, like, Zap me? Like, like, what have I done? And he has these three days of, of awareness of both who God is and his own sin, that he got everything wrong, that he, that he got everything wrong down to this very core. Um, and every person who becomes a Christian has to come to this realization. Now, you may say, well, I didn't get it all wrong. Like, Maybe you grew up believing in God and believing that the Bible was an okay book, right? Um, and so I'm not saying you didn't think there was a God or that the Bible was something legitimate, but think about how you thought about God and how you thought about the book, right? I think uh, most folks that grew up in the church and then become Christians, they're either, before, before becoming a Christian, they, they think of God either as a big meanie uh, who's going to get them, or they think of God as like a sugar daddy who just gives them whatever they want. Right? And yeah, they have a concept of God, <laughs> and they even have some information in the Bible, but they're, they're, they're not thinking <laughs> truly who God is, right? And then one day, it just clicks. They, they hear it, hear it, not just with ears, but down to the core. And they realize, no, God is not my sugar daddy, and he's not a big meanie. He is a father who has sent a son to save me from my sin and reconcile me in relationship with him, right? And, and you believe that by faith, and it changes your life. But it, 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 there's no doorway into that except for an awareness of your sin in the light of the holy God. There's no other way. 
to get in there. And, and I think American Christians are usually kind of swift to downplay the idea of sin. We've been so affected by marketing that we're just looking for how, how can we kind of hook people into the Christianity. And so we're like, we'll downplay this and we'll upplay this. And I'm telling you, that, that's not been that helpful <laughs> in terms of the health of the American church. Right? Like, it's important to become aware of our sin in light of a holy God. Um, now, there's no doubt that these three days of darkness had a profound effect on Saul. I mean, just reading some of his, the writing that uh, he does to churches in his ministry. First Timothy 1, he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formally, so now he's going to talk about his pre-Jesus life, He's saying, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. So you can see he has this strong sense of his, his sin. And I, I think that came in large part from those three days of darkness, of, of just kind of meditating <laughs> on a holy God and uh, his sin in light of a holy God. Um, but as the, pa- the passage mentions in 1 Timothy, grace does arrive. He doesn't just sit in his sin and uh, under condemnation, but he receives grace. Uh, and it's in the form of a Christian. A person who is a member of the church that he had been persecuting that is asked to bring the grace portion of this gospel message to Saul. So Acts 9 verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So this is so ironic. There's a lot of irony in this part of the story. Where Jesus, you know, has been confronting Saul, hey, why are you persecuting me? And then he's talking to Ananias, and he's like, hey, could you go to this former persecutor and give him grace? And Ananias is like, I don't know if I want this assignment. Like, at the beginning, he's like, here am I, you know? And then he's like, okay, here's your assignment. He's like, ah, let's, let's, maybe, maybe on second thought, maybe you could call, you know, some other guy. Um, and it's so funny because he's like going to clue God in. Like, God, have you heard? I mean, did you know? I've, I've heard some reports on this guy. This, this guy, he's bad news. I don't, I don't think we should be giving this guy grace. And this is grace, though, right? This is grace. It's so gracious. For the, the one who had been persecuted is now bringing grace. And I, I think this is in part so that Paul can experience grace like down to his core. We all need that, right? Like, what is grace? Well, you know, it's 
an, an undeserved gift? A lot of you could tell me that definition or a different, you know, similar definition. And, and we hear those definitions of grace and we kind of yawn, you know, like, yeah, that's, that sounds good. But he really wants us to grasp grace and grasp it like down to our body and soul. And he wanted that for Saul. And, and so Saul needed for Ananias to come and, and be an instrument of grace to Saul. And so this one who was part of this sort of persecuted minority is asked to go and deliver grace. And, and God explains this to Ananias in Acts 9, verse 15. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God, God's adamant. He's like, no, no, I have chosen Saul. I've chosen him. Not only just chosen him to become a Christian, I've, I've given him a mission. And God's already got him on the team. <laughs> He's already got a plan for, for Saul. And Saul has only had three, you know, persecution-free days of his life, of his adult life. And here now he's going to be given a mission to bring the gospel uh, to the, the nations, really. And so Ananias, after one, you know, kind of back and forth with God, he goes. And he serves as an instrument as well, right? So verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 17 says, Ananias departed, he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul is given this gift of grace in his darkness. From He's given grace... Um, from his physical darkness, but also his spiritual darkness. Now, by the time Ananias gets to the house, he is understanding more his mission, not just to restore Saul's sight, but to restore Saul to God. And when, when he lays hands on him, uh, he's, he's giving this like, he's physically symbolizing the giving of grace. Right? And he's, he's putting his hands on this one who was his enemy, but it's now his brother. And he calls him brother, right? And so he, he is saying, you are reconciled to God. The Holy Spirit is coming to dwell inside of you. But not just that, you're reconciled to me. You're reconciled to the brothers and sisters that are in the church. And it's such a, again, this physical symbol of being given grace. This is why I say I, I, God wanted him to grasp grace in his body and his soul. Right? And so instead of like just kind of giving him a vision, uh, he also gives him a person who comes in and lays hands on him and calls him brother and says, you're one of us. Right? Then he baptizes him. <laughs> Another like physical symbolizing of the giving of the grace of the gospel Right? Which is this, we all get this, right? If we're a Christian, we profess faith in Christ, we experience baptism, and and there's no probation. I mean, I'd be tempted. I'd be like, you know, let's let's give it some time. 
I, I don't know if you're ready for baptism yet. Let's have a few conversations. You know, you come to the meet Rich Stop class, and uh, we'll work it out. But he's like, baptized. Even before he eats. I mean, he hasn't had food or drink for uh, three days, which you're getting pretty close to having some major issues with the no drinking for three days. Um, but he's like, we're going to baptize you right now, and we'll worry about food later. And so it's this, again, this uh, symbolizing of, of grace being extended to uh, Paul. And this is Christian conversion. This is Christian conversion. Becoming aware of your sin in light of a holy God and then receiving by faith the acceptance that's given to us in Jesus. That's it. I mean, that's, this is conversion. And, it, you know, has this happened to you? Like, like, if you're a Christian, then this has happened to you. If it hasn't, then today may be your day. To, to become aware of your sin and to receive that by faith, that Christ has accepted you because of what he's done on the cross to die for your sins. Um, this awareness of sin is something that the Holy Spirit is actually working out in us. Um, Jesus, in John 16, he says this about the role of the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So convict or make aware of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What he means by that is sin, I've done things that are wrong. Righteousness, not only have I done something that's wrong, but I've broken relationship with the rule giver, right? The righteous one. And then judgment, I'm, under, I'm worthy of condemnation because I've broken the rules and I've broken relationship with the rule giver. And the Holy Spirit is at work convincing us that this is our condition, right? And we would never be able to come to those conclusions sincerely except by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, I, I know Saul's story is very unique, but this, there, there's some parallels here with every person who becomes a Christian, this uh, awareness of uh, sin in light of a holy God. Um, this, this is a very clear memory for me as a high school student. Um, I thought of myself as a good kid. I grew up in small town Texas. Um, this is a term my dad would use. He's a, a coach and a teacher, and he would say, that's a good kid. That guy's a good kid. That girl's a good kid. And what he meant by that was they did what they were told. They said, yes, sir, no, sir. They um, had decent grades. Um, you know, they, they weren't being arrested. You know, what, what those kinds of standards for being a good kid. And so, you know, I was a pretty good kid. But what I didn't realize is that I was also a sinner who needed a Savior. And, and so I'm kind of cruising through life, attending church, thinking, I'm a good kid. And then I go to a conference where they're teaching the Bible, they're teaching it, they're teaching about um, dating and sexuality, they're teaching about Anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and all these different things. And I'm listening and I'm going, ooh, I'm not as good a kid as I thought I was. Like in light of what they're teaching, I, there's a lot going on in here that is not good. But I kind of pushed it down and just said, you know what, that's just how they do it. My church is different. They, they do it, you know, I'm, I'm, good, I'm good at my home church. I'm not as good... For, for these folks, but I think, I'm, I think I'm fine. But I'm telling you, for the next year, I was struggling. 
and thinking about, am I a good kid? I don't actually feel like a good kid. There's so much going on in here that no one knows, right? And then at the, at the end of that kind of one year of struggling with that conviction, which is what it was, um, reaching out to God and asking for forgiveness, asking uh, for his grace. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he talks about this awareness of sin and the re- receiving of grace in so many places in his writings, but here in Ephesians 2, he describes the pre-Jesus con- condition. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I, he, he, he doesn't pull any punches. He's like, look, this is who we are outside of Christ. And he, and he describes vividly being sinners and under condemnation. But the very next verse, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you can just see those themes in Paul's writings of this deep awareness of, of sinfulness and being under wrath and under condemnation and worthy of those things, yet given grace in Christ as a gift. And, and given that full acceptance, full inclusion into a relationship with God and into the relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you're a Christian, you're kind of remembering that. You're thinking back on that. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is my story. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking, hopefully, hey, I can have that, right? Like, I can have this freedom from the condemnation of sin. Um, we also notice he gets baptized, right? I mean, he, he professes faith in Christ, and it's like, boom, we're, we're going to baptize this guy. And this is something you see throughout the book of Acts, people getting baptized, right? And we know that Christ commanded his disciples, go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so that, we do that. We, we baptize people. When they profess faith in Jesus, we say, okay, let's get baptized. Um, we're going to be talking about that in our July 30th Meet Ridgetop class. We're going to talk about church membership. And we're also talking about baptism, what that means, and uh, taking that step of being uh, baptized. But not only does Paul become aware of his sin in light of a holy God and receive this acceptance from God uh, through Christ, but he is sent on a mission. Um, this is first spoken to Ananias, right? He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Um, God's already got it on his mind. He's going to send Paul out, and, and he is going to have a significant gospel ministry. Uh, and Paul seems to get this pretty, pretty quick. Paul saw. Um, Acts 9, verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples, at Damascus. 
And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he, he makes no, he wastes no time. He jumps right in. He starts proclaiming uh, Christ to the, the folks in, in Damascus. Um, he's well known by them. This is, this is, he, he already has sort of a platform because he's known. Um, they knew he was a leader of a Jewish religion. They knew he had come to persecute the church. And now he's working for the other team. So it, it had to have really just got taken Damascus by storm. Have you heard about Saul? And so people are coming out of the woodwork to, to, to hear this guy. And, uh, you know, some, um, some were, like, you know, receptive and some not so receptive. Um, but we see uh, Luke saying that he was increasing in strength and that he was able to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And I, I think, you know, this makes a lot of sense for, for Saul to be able to do this because he knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he's just been given the key of Jesus to unlock all that scripture <laughs> that he knows. And so he's having, I, I would, would guess, some very, very well-informed biblical conversations with people that are saying, yeah, but this. And he's like, yeah, but it says right here. And he's proving, making a defense for the truth of um, the gospel. So not only an awareness, but an acceptance and ascending. And again, this, this is similar. Um, I know it's unique in terms of light from heaven, voice, these kinds of things. As far as I know, no one here who's a converted Christian has experienced those things. But if, if you're a Christian, you do experience an awareness of our sin before a holy God. We do experience an acceptance by grace, and we receive that by faith. And we are sent on a mission. We are sent on a mission. Um, and part of the awareness of, of sin and the acceptance um, that we receive in grace even that grows as we walk with Jesus. Um, this little diagram that I, I think I've used this before, and I, I've stolen it from someone, and I don't remember who, um, but I've seen it so many places, I think it's sort of like, you know, general information. But when you think about when a person becomes a Christian, they're cruising along, they get exposed to uh, the message of the gospel, the, the grace of the gospel, um, they also be begin to be aware of their sin, and that grows both their understanding of the gospel and the awareness of sin, and at some point, uh, they're ready to receive the grace that forgives them of that sin, and, and they become a Christian, right? doesn't mean that everyone can, like, nail that down or, you know, this is my day and my date, but, but our understanding is there's, there's some point in your life, if you're a Christian, where you became a Christian. No one's born a Christian. No one just like pops out, oh, I'm a Christian. Um, you have an experience of conversion. But when you begin to, to walk that out, these, these acceptance and awareness just grows. Right? You become more aware of layers and layers of, of sin and sinfulness, but you become more and more aware of the goodness and, and the, the, the grace 
of the gospel. And so as we look at Paul's story, um, we're remembering both our own conversions, but we're also remembering that we're sinners and we're in need of grace. And that's true today, (laughs) just as it was when we were first uh, we first became uh, Christians. And then the, the re- reminder that we're, we're sent. We're sent. Um, again, is our ministry going to look like the Apostle Paul? You know, we're going to go all over the, the Roman Empire and plant churches? No, uh, there is no Roman Empire. But we do have a call. We have a mission. And as a church plant, those of you that have decided to become a part of this little band of believers, um, you, you have a unique call. Right? You've been, been called to be on mission in the city and on these campuses if you're a college student and, and, and be on mission uh, in Christ's name. Is that true of every Christian? Yes, it is true of every Christian. Uh, but the unique kind of packaging of your call includes this church plant mission that we're on of, of reaching people with the gospel and gathering them into this local body that is an ever-increasing gospel witness uh, by God's grace. Um, in this city. We're reminded of uh, these truths every time we come to this table. Um, We're reminded of uh, an awareness of our our sin and an an acceptance of grace, right? And so every time we take this communion, it it should be a little bit of an indicator that, okay, before I do this, I should confess I should pray for a few moments. I should ask the Lord to bring to mind things over the course of the week that I've done against God and against others and confess that to Him. And then as you come up to take the bread and the cup, then you're rehearsing the, accept, the receiving of that acceptance by grace. Right? And that's what you did when you became a Christian, but it's this ongoing kind of experience of awareness of sin and a receiving of acceptance. And so Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new uh, covenant of my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so he definitely was wanting us to be thinking about both a confession of sin, but also the reminder of the grace that's been given to us in the gospel. And um, he gives us this little instrument, right? It's, it's, it's like a physical means that helps us to experience tangibly the grace of God. He, he wants us to grasp it, <laughs> And so as you're taking this, this bread and you're taking this cup, uh, you're not just um, grasping a piece of bread in a cup, you're hopefully spiritually grasping grace at a heart level. So let me pray and then uh, let's do this. God, we give you thanks. Thanks for confronting us with our sin, our separation from you. But also thank you for grace. Thank you for your gracious acceptance. Thank you for the cost that it, uh, it took to, to, to pay for that on the, on the cross. I thank you that we get to experience that at a heart level. God, help us to grasp it. Lord, sometimes it can feel like such a 
just a sort of theological concept or an intellectual idea. God, help us to grasp it down to our very core of our being, Lord, that we would be aware of, of what you've done in our lives. And so use this time of taking the bread, taking the cup, of singing this a couple of songs here at the end to help us to grasp these truths. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.